Welcome to the River City Church podcast and a message by our lead pastor, Jason Powers. Our prayer is that this message would inspire and encourage you, build your faith, and point you to the life-changing love of Jesus. May you enjoy the goodness of God as you follow him today. We've been in the Psalms and we've been looking at the Psalms and I read a story this week about Will Rogers. Uh, Will Rogers was an American, he was, a, he was an American comedian, he was a stage actor, he was a cowboy, he was, he was a funny guy, um, but he was a little bit of a contrarian. Uh, and so his whole kind of thing, one of his things that he kind of railed at was um, kind of like, like the whole political process campaign. So in 1928, uh, Will Rogers mounted a, a mock campaign, a presidential campaign, where he kind of went around the country and basically lampooned the whole process. Like, like he, he just made fun of the whole thing. And it was witty and it was sharp and it was insightful. But one reporter asked him one time, you know, why don't you really run for president? Like you, you could, you know, you could make a difference. Like you, you could have ideas. And, and the idea was, why wouldn't you want to be a person with that kind of influence? Because that was really the question. Why wouldn't you want to be a person of influence, right? You could have people follow you. And Will Rogers made this amazing quote about influence. He said this, if you get to thinking you're a person of some influence, try ordering around someone else's dog. (laughs) Isn't that great, right? Because my dog is generally friendly, um, big, right? But my dog will love you and lick you and stand on you and violate your personal space in a million different ways, right? But my dog listens to me, like when I, by and large, right? Mostly, right? Remus, get down, Remus, get down right around. He'll listen. If I say Remus, come, if he's outside, he'll come in when I ask him. He listens to me. And you gotta think about why is that? He listens to me because he knows me. He knows that I feed him, he knows that, that I take care of him, that I give him little treats, that I rub his ears, that I take him for walks, that I do all that. Knowing me, knowing my voice, knowing that I care for him leads to trust, which allows him, which encourages him, which gives him the freedom to obey, to do the things he do. He knows generally, okay, if I, if I listen to that guy with that voice, then, uh, then, then I'll be okay. Jesus said a similar thing in John chapter 10. He's talking to the Pharisees. Now, the thing with the Pharisees, they were a group of people who used the law, the religious law, the law of Moses, to control people and to manipulate people and to get them to do what they wanted. And so they would, they, they would quote, you know, Old Testament biblical scriptures to control people to do what they wanted, right? And so Jesus is teaching, talking to the Pharisees, and he uses this metaphor. It was an agrarian society. Shepherds were a thing, and he, he says this, verse 2, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. So you got to think about the shepherd. What's the role of the shepherd? He cares for the sheep. He tends to the sheep. He looks after the sheep. He feeds them. He knows who they are. He knows where they go. He's the, the caretaker, and so what he says is, you can always tell. The shepherd doesn't have to hop over the fence. The shepherd doesn't have to jimmy the lock, doesn't have to pick the lock. He walks in through the gate. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and listen, and the sheep listen to his voice. If you've seen, if you watch shepherds and sheep, a shepherd can walk through a field and like dogs, he can call and the sheep will come running, right? His, he calls his own sheep by name. So not only do the sheep know him, but he knows the sheep. Oh, that's Rufus the sheep, right? And that, that's, you know, Freddie the sheep or whatever. 
When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow them because they know his voice. He's talking about this relationship between shepherd and sheep. And he uses this metaphor, and the biblical metaphor of sheep, is it, it runs really throughout scripture, and it's the idea that people are the sheep, right? And he uses God and God's leaders, the pastors, the prophets, the leaders, as shepherds, the one who are supposed to be caring for and tending to the sheep. And what Jesus says is the same thing kind of that Will Rogers said. The shepherd knows the sheep. He knows their names. And the sheep know the shepherd. In the same way that Remus obeys me because he knows that I feed him and care for him and I provide a house for him and, he, and I'm the one that lets him on the bed and all those things. As long as, because Remus knows those things, he follows me and trusts me. And Jesus says the same thing. People who know me, who trust me, they're the ones who follow. And so what I want to say is as we kind of talk about every decision, we go, all these decisions, we've been looking at the Psalms and we kind of began with this idea of two roads. And I want to say is every decision that we make places us at a crossroads. Every decision that we make is a choice. Do I go this way? Do I do kind of what Jesus said? And some of them have more significance and relevance than others, right? Do I eat at Wendy's or do I eat at Bill Miller's? I'm not sure that there are eternal consequences aside from, is there any part of my life that I don't trust to Jesus or whatever? But some consequence, some are very consequential. Am I a generous person or am I a stingy person? Am I a forgiving person or am I not a forgiving person? And every crossroads we make, every decision that we have to make to lead on a road that goes either towards Jesus, towards the Father, or away from him, at the root of every single decision, and I, and I really, every single decision is this question, can I trust him? And I want you to know that in church, well, in this church, it's safe to wrestle with that. Because in a lot of churches, we have to just say, yeah, of, of course, yes, I trust, yes, I trust him. But underneath all of these commands, underneath these, yes, we trust Jesus, but when it comes to forgiving others, we ask the question, if I forgive, if I follow the way of Jesus, will it hurt me? If I forgive that person, will they hurt me again? Will I just be back in the same place? God, can I trust you enough to do the things that you say. God, will you betray me? God, you, scripture says to confess, right? If we may, if we sin, to confess, to go to people. If I confess to people close to me about my, about my sins, about my weaknesses, will they use those weaknesses against me? Will I have to walk around in shame? If I follow you, Jesus, and I live by your principles and your mandates, will I be ashamed? God, will you abandon me? God, say that I start following you. Say that I start walking your way. Am I going to get at some point down the road and find out that it's all not true? Am I going to be generous and end up destitute? Am I going to be loving and be found alone? God, one, are you real? And that's an important question. I want you to know this is a safe place to wrestle with that question. Are you real? And if so, are you just going to abandon me someday? God, can you deal with the ugly parts of me? I mean, it's easy for me to bring my, my church parts, right? I, I mean, I read, when I read the scripture, or when I pray, or when I do the right thing, or when I'm nice, yeah, I, I love to bring that to the Lord, but what about my angry parts? And not just the angry parts, what about the repetitively, the destructively angry parts that I don't seem to be able to get a handle on? What about those addictions? Can I, can I bring you my alcoholism? Can I, can I bring you my drug addiction? 
God, can I bring you my, my shopaholism or, or my workaholism or any one of those isms, my codependency, my need to control and to manipulate others? Can I just come to you, God, and go, God, this is me. See, it's easy to say we're badly broken. Badly broken is easy because it's big and broad and general, and we can all kind of smile and say, yes, we're all badly broken. But to just come in and say, I am an addict. I am, I am a codependent. I'm a controller. I'm a manipulator. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Can we bring that to God? Does God accept that? And if so, does it make him turn his back? Does it make him ashamed? Does it make God want to destroy us? Every decision that we make is a crossroad. How will I respond in this moment? And I want you to hear me say, as a man, as a guy, as a disciple on this road, but as a pastor, I want you to hear me say, I know that it's hard. And I know that these decisions that we make about the way that we live and the way that we move and the way that we walk around, they're not easy. They're not simple. They're not straight ahead. And I want you to know that often, if not always, the question comes down to, is it wise or safe to put myself in the hands of a God that I can't see? Because I can see the tax collector. I can see the IRS. I can see my boss. I can see my coworkers. I can see everybody's life on Facebook. Is it safe to trust God in the middle of this. And here's what I want to say. I want to start. I'm going to make the point right away and I'm going to build this up. I'm going to point it. I just want to say my whole hope and contention is that I can follow him because he knows me. And this knowledge is, is important. It's like the biblical knowledge. Knowledge in the biblical sense. The Hebrew word is yada. It's like to know. Like I yada you. It's like literally in the, like to know all of the things. What I'm going to say is God knows you. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 139 today. So if you've got your Bible somewhere, you can, you can find it. Um, because being known is important. My dog follows me because he knows me. And I think too many times, maybe we don't know God, but more significantly importantly than that, we're not sure that God knows us. I mean, really knows us. We walk around with a sense of hiddenness. And that's what shame is, right? You look in the Garden of Eden, what did Adam do? Like he, he went to shame and he hid, and so we hide from God. And so as you're looking at Psalm 139, the first thing we find kind of in the, in the superscript at the beginning is it's the Psalm of David. Now, one of the things I love we said about the Psalms is the Psalms are very personal. That Really, more than almost any other books, the Psalms reflect kind of the mode and the personality of the author. They are honest reflections and responses to God in the middle of real life. And so, oftentimes, the Psalms are even uniquely, the Psalms are raw. And we're going to encounter some raw parts today, but I want you to think about David. This is a Psalm that was written by David. You know who David was. David was a warrior. David was a shepherd. But David took from the shepherd, he learned how to use a slingshot. He learned how to use a spear. He learned how to use a sword. David was a commander. He was a general. David led armies victoriously. David could be ruthless. David shed much blood. In fact, David wanted to build a temple for God. And God says, you cannot build my temple because you are a man who has spilled blood. But David was a poet. David had a tender heart. He was a feeler, you would say. He was in touch with his emotions and the feelings around him. David was a man with great relationships. We read about David and his friend Jonathan, and the scripture uses a unique phrase. It says their souls were knit together. David was the king of Israel. He had power. People bowed before David. And David was a murderer. And David was an adulterer. And David was a terrible father. 
and a terrible husband. And David had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And David, we're told an axe, after the end of the whole Old Testament all that, we're found in axe. David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. See, David was a guy who knew what it was to sin greatly and to sin deeply and to be broken and to be broken almost beyond our, our ability to conceive it. But David knew that he was a man after God's own heart. He knew that God knew him and saw him. And so he writes Psalm 139 in the beginning. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me, yada, you know me. Now he begins to go and unpack that knowledge. What does it mean to say that God knows me? And the rest of Psalm 139 really is unpacking that. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. There are times where Natalie can walk into a room and she knows, right? Is my face like this? Right? What, is, what does that mean? That means something. She can perceive my thoughts from across the room. God sees David and he understands. He knows, oh, this, today's a good day for David. Today's not a good day for David. David's in a dark place. David is afraid or alone. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. These are like the rhythms and the habits of David's life. God, he, God knows that David is a morning person or an evening person. God knows that David doesn't like sauerkraut. God knows what, he knows all these things, these habits, these petitions. He says, you are familiar with all of my ways. That kind of habit that you have, right? I count my fingers. It's like, it's part of my OCD thing. It's one of my coping things. God knows that about me. He knows the things that I do. Before a word is on, this is fun. You're gonna love this. Before a word is on my tongue, let me find it, because I want to, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Think about all those things that you didn't say, that you felt really proud of yourself for not saying, that you walk back and you're like, if you'd only known what I was thinking, right? God knows that. Ha <laughs> ha. Imagine plugging in your brain and having every thought you've ever thought projected onto the screen. God, you know that. You know the shameful, lustful, arrogant, prideful. You know before anything ever even comes out of my mouth, you know what it is. You know it, you know it completely. All those passive-aggressive things that we say in emails, God knows the heart behind those things. You hem me in behind and before me and you lay your hand upon me. See, this is a picture of intimacy. God knows all of the expressions of my life, all the rhythms of my life. God knows that I drive too fast. God knows all of these things for me. And listen, I want you to think about that. If you knew that, how does that thought make you feel right now? How does it make you feel to know that all of the things that you've ever done since the moment you were born, all of your thoughts, those angry moments, the tear-stained pillows, all of those things, God knows that about you. And it says he knows it completely, and he knows it utterly, and he knows the motive behind it, and he knows the fallout of it. He knows all of that. Well, David knew that, and his meditation was, surely such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. When David contemplated the reality of God's knowledge of him, David saw that as good news. There's something powerful in being known. I, um, I don't watch playoff baseball, Astros playoff baseball. I'll watch playoff baseball, whatever. I don't watch playoff Astros baseball with other people um, because a lot of them I have to still be their pastor, and it's not always <laughs> healthy for people to see their pastor throw a fit, right? Like I stalk over grown men playing a game, right? It's not a pretty side of me, but I do watch with my family. 
because my family knows. They roll their eyes and they just know, you know, the kids go upstairs if they have to, whatever. The kids know that's just dad. That's just one of the things that he does. David knows there's comfort in being known. There's comfort in being seen. David says, it's a blessing to me that you know me. I can be real with God. And he goes on. Verse 7, he asks this question, where can I go from your spirit, right? That, that kind of tangible presence. And now this next passage, you really see the poetry in this. He uses a lot of metaphor, uses a lot of, a lot of poetic language, right? Kind of, kind of devices and metaphors. He says, where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence. And some of this indicates, right, this doesn't necessarily indicate that David wants to flee, but there are times where we do, right? There are times where we just go, I just want to be left alone. I just want God, I don't want, I don't want any part of that. God, if you're here, right? And he's asking this question rhetorically. Well, what about this? If I go up to heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So this is poetic language, right? And he's talking about these spiritual realities, the heavens and the depths. The word uh, in the Hebrew is sheol, right? It's like the place of the dead. If I'm on the spiritual mountain, right? And if I sing the worship song and, oh, my hands are raised and my heart is full and things are going, I'm like, God, I can feel you. He says, God, that's real. You can, you truly can feel God. But he says, but if I make my bed in sheol, if I go down to the very depths, when I am laying on my bed, and I cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? He says, he's there too. You feel like you're struggling alone, but what David says is wherever I go, whatever my spiritual condition, God's presence isn't limited by my limitations. God's presence isn't limited by whether I feel him or not. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, so now he's talking geographically, right? The wings of the dawn is a kind of, Common, ancient metaphor for, for the east, for the sunrise. It's early in the morning. If I rise on the wings of the if I get up in the morning, or if I settle on the far side of the sea, it would have been the Mediterranean Sea, right? People in Israel, the Mediterranean's on the west. From sunrise to sunset, from horizon to horizon, wherever I go, God, if I'm an early riser, do I have to wait for you? Am I like boiling my cup of coffee, waiting so I can do my quiet time for God to get up? No. If I'm an evening person, if I wake up in the middle of the night and my anxious thoughts and it's three o'clock in the morning, do I have to worry that God's asleep? No. Even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. But I'd say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around to me. My kids are afraid of the dark, not so much anymore, but when they were little, because the darkness is the unknown. And there's this temptation, right, when we first started doing this, and, and we got better with, I think, with each kid, with Jackson, my oldest, it was tough because we were just practicing and we didn't know, right? But the temptation is, right, look, there's nothing in the closet. Look, there's nothing under the bed. Look, there's nothing under the covers, right? But here's the problem. Fear isn't rational, right? Jackson just thinks, well, the monsters got in after you did, right? <laughs> Duh. By the end, what we begin to try to teach our kids is, the dark isn't something to be afraid of. Why? Because Jesus is there. Because God's there. And that's what David is wrestling with. If I say the darkness will hide me, oh my gosh, I'm going to be consumed by darkness. Whatever the darkness is, whatever that thing that you fear is, if I'm going to be consumed by darkness, what he says, even the darkness will be not be dark to you. What it doesn't say is that you're never going to get cancer. What he's saying is in the darkest thing that you can imagine, God is there. And he's there with the, as the God who knows you. When you freak out, when you're afraid, when you don't respond in faith, and the world seems to be piling up and you're underwater and overwhelmed and all that stuff. God is there knowing you. Yada-ing you. Even the darkness won't hide me. The night 
will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. Listen, God's power and his presence and the reality of who he is, it's not mitigated by the circumstances. See, the problem with telling my kids that there are no monsters in the closet is that circumstantial security, and circumstances always change, don't they? But rather, we want to say, yeah, circumstances are in flux, dude. Nothing I can do about that. But there's a God in this moment who knows you. He knows you're afraid. You're going to be okay. He knows that you're scared of this. He knows this is bigger than you. He knows he's, he's okay. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. There's a sense of divine purpose in creation, right? When you're knitting and you ask somebody, what are you making? I'm making a scarf. I'm making a hat. I'm making a a belt. I'm making a cape. Whatever it is, but there's purpose. This is the picture that David used. You're creating me. You're knitting me together. And he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. See, David has just contemplated fear. If I'm afraid, if the darkness, he says, but yet, God, I know that you created me with the capacity for fear. And he looks at you and he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully. Imagine being able to look at yourself in the mirror hard, hard, and not passing glance. The older I get, the easier it is to glance, right? And I didn't like, so I cut all my hair off, so I don't even have to look in the mirror for that anymore, right? But imagine being able to take your take a good hard look at yourself in the mirror and know all the things that you know about yourself and be able to go, God, I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. We don't go, well, God, there's some good things, but you know, I'm not like I used to be or whatever. Why didn't you get it? Whatever. We don't feel like that. We feel like so much about us is a mistake. And not just physically, I'm talking about our personalities. God, why, why couldn't you make me more eloquent? God, why couldn't you make me able to, why can't I hold my tongue, God? God, why am I so angry? Why am I such a passionate person? God, why do I, why do, I do this? Why can't I just dial it back? Why can't, God, why can't I, why can't I? And David, knowing all these things, David is a guy who uses his sword to do damage. David is a guy who ruled with an iron fist. David is a guy who was broken and flawed, and yet he looks in the mirror and he sees God with him, and he goes, God, you've done something amazing here. You knit me together. He says, I praise you. Your works are wonderful. He says, I know that full well. He says, sure, there's rust and there's dirt and there's messy parts and there's all kinds of broken stuff in me, but underneath this, God, there's something amazing. We sing a song sometimes called Beautiful Things, and it says, God, you make beautiful things out of dust, and there's no exceptions to that. And say, you make beautiful things generally, But me, I'm just an old so-and-so. God, the Grand Canyon is spectacular and wonderful, but me, oh, I'm just an old dummy. I'm just a baseball player. I'm just a pastor. I'm just, I'm just. He says, my frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your frame, the physical part of you, you know God doesn't lament over your hips or your baldness. I say that, and it's good. Like, as adults, we can, we, can, we can laugh at that, but I just want you to know I had a moment in the last couple of weeks where I looked in the mirror, and for the first time in my life, I felt old. Not older, right? Like, I felt older before. I felt old. And I look at pictures of me in high school, and I'm like, I ate that kid, right? Like, that kid's, right? <laughs> I had hair. I had all this beautiful, right? 
God doesn't look at me and go, man, I wish you had hair again. God doesn't even say, man, I wish you ate less. God may say, I wish you understood that contentment isn't at the bottom of a bag of chips. But God doesn't look at me and feel disappointment. God doesn't look at me and feel shame. I want my little daughters to grow up knowing, kid, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Kid, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knit together, and God says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That means before this bad day happened, God, you knew. Before I lost my temper, before I made that irreversible decision, God, you knew, and it was written for me. You said, there's a purpose. And Romans 8 says, God causes all things to work together for good. That's what it is. Listen, you're not able to mistake your way out of God's favor if you walk with him. On the road, he's watching. On the road, he sees. And he knows we're weak. He knows we're afraid. He knows we're prone to being faithless. He knows we're going to do things that we shouldn't do. And as as long as we stand up and go, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Look, you know what I am. He goes, I do. Let's get up. Let's keep going. Come on. Come on. Keep walking. Keep walking. No. I know you're afraid of the dark, Jack. I know we talked about this last time, and I know you said there were no monsters last night, and I know you think there are days. It's fine, buddy. We'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. And then one day, he's not afraid anymore. And that day, we go, yeah! Now it's something else. But we walk together, because I know who my son is. And sure, he's afraid of the dark sometimes, but he's the most sensitive, loving, kind, open-hearted boy I've ever known in my life. I know who my son is. That's what God feels about you. When you look in the mirror, you need to have a sign. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. And a lot of translations, well, in every translation, there's a footnote here. There's a different kind of an alternate translation, just some of the word orders and some of the words that way. An alternate reading of that is, how amazing are your thoughts concerning me? Did you know that you are on God's mind all of the time, all of the time. How amazing, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. And he gives an example. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sands. When I awake, I'm sorry, it's not just a dream. It's not just a dream that my God could love me and think of me like that. God, I am never, and not I, right, like us, like we kind of editorialize the we, right? It's like the royal we, we, the whole commonwealth or whatever. No, 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 you. David, you are on God's mind all the time. And that's scary, right? You go, oh my gosh, all the time. There's not that much good to think about, right? Yeah, don't kid yourself. He created you on purpose. He's thinking about the wonderful plan that he has for you. He's thinking about his dreams for you. He's thinking about all the things that he wants to see you. And you go, yeah, but God, he's like, kid, stop. I want you to meditate on my plan and my purpose and my goodness for you. I want you to trust me, because if you would trust me, then you would be free from all these hang-ups. Then you would be free from all this pain and this hurt. Oh, yeah, people are going to hurt you, sure. Oh, my gosh, you're going to live in a world where terrible things are going to happen. There are going to be, sure, tornadoes and war and terrorism. All those things are awful and terrible. But I see you, kid. I got you. Yeah, listen, you're going to get sick. And the death rate continues to hover right around 100%. I can't deliver you from that, but I'm going to show you Moment by moment, I'm going to show you that that doesn't define you and that's not something to be afraid of because I'm with you. I've got you. How precious to me are your thoughts. 
Now it gets kind of raw, and this is why it's important for us to remember this is written by David. This is David's response. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. You're like, oh my gosh, that's a dark turn, right? Like, oh, you think good thoughts of me. Kill them all, God. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are rebelling against you? See, the problem is sometimes we read that and we go, yeah, the Bible tells me I can hate people as long as they're God's enemies. That's not what it says. Listen, this is that, imagine if we got to plug into your brain and got to see all your thoughts. Not all of your thoughts that pass into your head are worth passing out of your mouth, are they? You've got to remember, David's a warrior. When David thinks of enemies, he thinks of killing people. David was in warrior mode right now. Here's the thing. That thing in David that is uniquely David, that strength and that courage and that leadership that God put into David, this is that coming out. Oh, that you would slay them, God. I have nothing but aid for them. I count them my enemies. Listen, when you recognize and wrestle with this fact that God knows you, I want you to know your deepest, biggest, fullest passions begin to bubble out. That thing that you've been cramming down for your whole life to go along and get along, as you follow God, God doesn't make you less like yourself. He doesn't turn you into a robot. He makes you the you that you were always created to be. And guess what? Some of it's ugly, Some of it doesn't read well on the page. It's okay. I can look at this and listen. I'm never going to go to God and go, God, kill them. He's going to go, well, now I've got to, right? (laughs) Go before the Lord vulnerable. Go before the Lord and say, strike my enemies and just sit there and be there. Because listen to what David says next. Search me and know my heart, God. Text me and know my ancient thoughts, right? Why do we want to kill our enemies? Because they're our enemies. So even as David says that, he goes, oh, wait, wait. Search me. Test my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He says, God, if you decide that it's not best to kill my enemies, then you do you, God. David's response, this meditation, you know my habits. You know my physical expressions. You know the plans that you have for me. You know how I was created. You know my moods. You know my gifts. You know my skills. You know all of the things that I do. God, you know me. And God, you haven't left I'm David the murdering king. I'm David the adultering, murdering, songwriting, terrible father king. And David, and God's like, you're a man after my own heart. Because you admit that and because you walk in that and because you let that go. And David, you let me deliver you and you let me. And at the end of it all, you say, God, lead me. And if that way is not the right way, I want the other way. Listen, God can be trusted to lead me well. You wonder if it's okay to trust God. Let me tell you, it is absolutely okay because he knows the things that make you scared. He knows the bumps in the night that make you nervous, that make you afraid. God is not shaken by your failure. You don't have to have shame or fear with God. Oh, but what about that one thing? It was really bad. Listen, listen. 
And our desire to make God look high, to have a high view of, of God's holiness and God's righteousness, we talk about sin and we just go, oh, and everybody wants to just know, oh, is this a sin or is that a sin? Listen, here's my baseline. Yes, it probably is. If you're asking the question, that thing is probably a sin for you. You know why? Because it's idolatry. Because that question means this, don't let this be a sin. And what God is saying, of course, that's probably a sin. Lots of things can be sin. Will you follow me instead? The question I want to know is, if God asked you to give that up, would you say yes? That prejudice against a certain person or group of people, would you give that up? That behavior, that thing, that identity that you think you have, would you be willing to give that up? If the answer is no, we don't have a behavior problem, we have a lordship problem. God's not afraid of your failures. God wants you to follow him, not out of shame or condemnation, but out of love and out of grace. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? God knows how all those strange parts of you fit together. That weird hobby that you have, <laughs> God knows. And he knows it has a purpose. And he knows that he created you for that. God knows your wildest dreams. And he knows all the subtle ways that we sabotage them. God knows that you dream of being unconditionally accepted and loved. And he knows that you play at sex to get it. And he loves you anyway. And he wants you to follow him into freedom. And he wants you to know that he knows you and he sees you. God sees beauty and strength where you see misfit and shame. There's an example of this in John chapter 1. Jesus is just beginning his ministry, right? And he's walking around and he's starting to call his disciples. And so uh, he's, he's just getting started in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. Um, let me find it. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And he finds Philip. And he says to Philip, hey, follow me, right? Philip, follow me. Come on, Philip, me. And whatever. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. So Philip found Nathaniel. Every time you see Philip in scripture, he's grabbing someone and bringing him to Jesus. So Philip's like, Jesus like, hey, Philip, follow me. And Philip's like, one minute. He goes to Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Come on. Hey, we're going. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about the whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now listen, before we read on, I want you to think about this. Think about the setup. Hey, we just found God. We found the one that has been promised, that has been prophesied about. And look at what Nathaniel says. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Listen, we read that as the Bible and we just press over that. That is deep cynicism. Oh, you, next president's from Poteet. Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, the flying pigs. I saw them too, Philip. Sure, right? This is a deep and a jaded cynicism. Now, so, so he says, yeah, right. Come and see. Philip's like, yeah, right, whatever. I've heard it, right? Philip knew. Come on, yeah, right, I got this. So he follows him. Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathaniel, now listen, Nathaniel just not only insulted him, but his hometown, and therefore his heritage, right? Imagine if you're Jesus, right, and you got angels, you got lightning bolts, you got plagues and destruction, whatever. What do you do to Nathaniel? Notice what he says. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, that's a gracious spin, right? Jesus is indeed saying, yeah, not a lot to see in Nazareth. Really? It's a place to stop and pee on your way to somewhere else, right? Yeah, and then, hey, I got you, Nathaniel. I see you, right? But what a gracious sin. He doesn't get him and go, uh, Nathaniel, you're too cynical about me. I'm Jesus, and I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day, Nathaniel. You got to get yourself together. He says, that's my boy. 
That's Nathaniel right there. Nathaniel, he can spot him a mile away. Listen, if an encyclopedia salesman comes to your house, you want Nathaniel there, man, because he's going to pick it apart. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. He says, you know me, you see me, and you call me to follow you anyway. You're the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. Very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I want to tell you, there is a vision and a reality for those who follow Jesus that will just blow your mind. And it begins with knowing him. It begins with understanding him. Jesus saw behind the cynicism. Jesus saw behind the doubt. Jesus saw behind whatever, the laziness, the fear, whatever it was, And he saw Philip for what he could be. I want you to know today, God loves you with with perfect understanding. So follow him. Let me be very clear. I had this like this is like my pastoral responsibility. I don't want you to just believe in him. I want you to follow him. I want you to do all those really scary things that you think he might be doing. Those things that you might have been putting off because you're not sure how it's going to work out. Those things that you really put off that you worry about. Listen, in John chapter 10, where we started, remember he's talking about the sheep and the shepherds? Verse 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Now, we always think he's talking about the devil there. He's not. He's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the religious leaders, the ones who want to control him. He says, thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, I've come that they can have life. That's God's desire for you. They would have life and have it to the full. Skip down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows you. He knew you before you knew you. He knew you before you were. Jesus is going to lead you to uncomfortable places. Make no mistake. Because in the uncomfortable places, you begin to know him as the comforter. He's going to lead you to places where you don't have enough resource and strength and wisdom because then you will see that he has all the strength and wisdom and resource that you need. He will cause you to lean in and attempt to fix things that seem broken beyond repair. And he'll ask you to trust him in that. We're going to sing the song, Oceans. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Lead me to places, Jesus, where I would never wander on my own. Lead me to be more generous than I think I can afford. Lead me to be more gracious than I think I can tolerate. Lead me to be more forgiving. Lead me to be so forgiving that I give my enemies ammunition to hurt me so that I trust you. My question is, are you following Jesus? And what I mean is, I want you to leave all of that other stuff behind I mean, I want you to leave behind all the ways that you protect yourself. And I want you to leave it all in his hands. And I want you to follow him. And I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where where you're at. So I just want to say, today's the day. If you come today and just say, Jesus, I've been going and I I don't know, but I want to be known like that. I want to be known in such a way that my failures don't mean rejection. I want to know and be known like that. And so say, Jesus, will you lead me? That is confession. And it is repentance. It is turning around. And the scripture says that's the conditions of salvation. 
The word Lord means boss. So this team's going to lead us. And they're going to sing this prayer. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. You call me out upon the waters where feet fail. And in deep waters, I find grace. And what I want you to contend with today, are you following? Not do you believe. I believe if you're open to it, God is relatively easy to believe in. He's significantly harder to follow. And maybe for the first time today, you go, Jesus, lead me. What we're told is his spirit will come in and he will begin to lead you internally. And it'll be hard. You'll need other people. You'll need the word. But what you can begin to experience is being known by God. You're before me. You're behind me. You're all around me. There's nowhere I can go. Even the ugly parts are beautiful to you. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you in a way that's real and appropriate to you during this song to just respond. And if you haven't followed Jesus, don't walk out of here without doing that. Don't miss this opportunity today to follow him. Let's worship. Thank you for joining us today. River City Church is all about experiencing and expressing God's love in our lives and community. And we hope that you've been able to experience that today. As grateful as I am that you've spent this time listening in this morning, this podcast is no substitute for full participation in a local church. I love it when River City people listen to other pastors, but it is those who show up week after week, faithfully giving their support and time and resources that make all of this possible. If we can help you get connected to a local church, pray for you, or support you in any way, click the link in the description and let us know. If you'd like to financially support the ministry of River City, click the Give link on our website in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to share this with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. May the Lord bless and keep you in all grace and peace.